But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for worship. And we pray, Lord, as we pause now to hear from Scripture that you would speak to us. Speak that our souls may hear. And Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, will be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Christ's holy name, saying together, Amen. Amen. Please be seated and find your Bible. We have been talking about flourishing, of God's work in our life to manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, and Paul uh, gave characteristics of spiritual fruit as we grow in our relationship with God. And today we turn our attention to the descriptor of faithfulness. Years ago, Jack Taylor wrote, He who is godlike or godly will be faithful. Our being faithful is a miracle the Holy Spirit alone can perform. The writer of Proverbs said, who can find a faithful man? Well, faithfulness is born out of a relationship with God as we flourish in our relationship with Him. Today, we look at a scene in the book of Acts where a faithful man was present, faithful people were present, and faithfulness was encouraged. Uh, as your Bibles are being opened, turn with me to Acts chapter 11. Uh, we'll start reading in a few moments in verse 19. As we see both the faithfulness of God and our response to that faithfulness, which is a life of devotion, a life of faithfulness lived uh, in light of that gracious faithfulness of our Lord. I hear the pages turning. That's a nice sound. We'll start in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that took place over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. And they spoke the word to no one except Jews. But among them there, was, there were some men from Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, the Greeks, the Gentiles, also proclaiming the Lord Jesus. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number became believers and turned to the Lord. News of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he rejoiced. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast devotion. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for an entire year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. This is a powerful scene in the book of Acts, uh, Acts chapter 11. You might notice that Acts chapter 11 is preceded by Acts chapter 10. That's an amazing deal there that I knew that surprises some of you. 
It's simple math. But in Acts chapter 10, there's this story. We might call it the story of the the Gentile Pentecost, if you will. Uh, The gospel is advancing. Uh, The church is doing what Jesus told them to do. And they're they're telling uh, about him. They're proclaiming the lordship of Christ. And and people are believing and and turning to Christ. Uh, And in in the 10th chapter, uh, some of those people that heard and responded were Gentiles. And this was a big deal. Uh, Frank Stagg talked about the progression of the gospel in Acts, a, a progression of the, the unhindered gospel as the gospel goes from, from Jews to Samaritans to Gentiles to the uttermost parts of the world. And, and as these Gentiles believed, as they heard, as they responded, God did something extraordinary. The Spirit of God was poured out on those Gentile believers. And just like Acts chapter 2, 2 comes before 10. Get that one? Just like in Acts chapter 2, a a miracle occurred, and they began to praise God and, and speak in other languages. They began to speak in tongues. So there's this symbol, this powerful happening in the world where God is, is confirming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And where God is showing himself not to be some localized tribal deity, but the Lord of, of all the earth. So you have that scene in, in chapter 10. Then when we come to chapter 11, the church is being persecuted and, and they're being scattered and they're being spread. And as they go, they're going proclaiming. And here they are proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord. And people are coming to faith. And some of these people are Hellenists. They're not like the folks back home. Here's a group of people that have been called by God to follow God and to proclaim, and they did. And their message, Jesus Christ is Lord. Not of one town or city or place or people, but Lord. This is the uniform message of the New Testament. This is the gospel, Jesus Christ is Lord. In 2 Corinthians, Paul would say, we don't proclaim ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And that was their message. And they went about proclaiming it. And the writer of Acts says something important, narrates the experience. He says, as they went about proclaiming the Lordship of Christ, said the hand of the Lord was with them. Somebody says to you, hey, lend me a hand. Only the most Amelia Bedelia of us would chop it off and hand it over. You know what it means to, to, to lend a hand or to have someone give you a hand. It means to be present, to be with you and for you and to help you. The writer of Acts is telling the story of what was going on. He said, they were speaking about the Lordship of Christ. And the Lord, the Lord, he was with them. His hand was present among them. He was there. As we are called to faithfulness, to be people of devoted faithfulness to God, we have got to start here. With the faithfulness that the Lord has shown us and that the faithfulness he has promised and is stubborn and relentless to fulfill in the living of our days. God is faithful. 
One of the most beautiful descriptions of the faithfulness of God, in my estimation, is from the Old Testament book of Lamentations. Lamentations, that poetry of passion and pathos, uh, the words written not in a time of great victory, but in a time of great struggle and challenge. Uh, the, the writer in chapter 3, beginning in verse 22, says it like this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Growing up, we would sing, Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. The Lord is my portion. Great is his faithfulness. And day by day, morning by morning, every time the sun comes up, every time we spin around one more time, God is there. Stubborn, relentless, present. On those days of great victory where the lines fall to us in pleasant places. And in those long nights of struggle and shame, God is there. Mercies new every single day. This is the promise of Scripture and the lived experience of scores of people who have walked with God through great successes and dark hours and all the mundane moments in between. God is faithful. This is one of the core theological truths. This is one of the big rocks that serve as the foundation of our life of faith, that God is faithful. Jesus promised it, didn't he? In Matthew 28, he told those disciples as he was blessing them, as he was about to leave uh, their scope of vision, as he was telling them that they would be clothed with power, that they would not be orphaned. He told them that they would be about his work in the world, giving his message, doing his deeds. And he said, Lo, I am with you always. I still like that old antiquated King James language because I like lo. I think I'm going to start using it in everyday run-of-the-mill conversations. <laughs> lo, Joe, let's go play some basketball. You know, that kind of thing. Lo. What does that mean? What is it? It's kind of like this. Look! Watch! Pay attention! Hold my sandwich. Watch this. Come here! Low sounds so elegant. This is not an elegant word. This is a, an expletive of great merit. Pay attention. I'm about to say something here. And I want you to get it. This morning, J.D. Hudson is 91 years old today. Way to go, J.D. Um, I'm, I'm strapping on my little earpiece. He said, I'm glad you're wearing that today. He said, I want to be able to hear. I said, well, I'm going to do my part for you to hear, but the listening's all up to you. <laughs> Jesus was saying, hey, the listening's all up to you. But I'm going to say it as clearly as I know how to say it. I am with you always. Always. 
That leaves nothing out. The church had a great victory. The church was persecuted and pressured. The church was scattered. And as they went about running for their lives, they went about proclaiming the lordship of Christ. And Luke said, and the hand of God was with them. A lot of us think when the pressure comes, we've been forsaken. A lot of us think when when we're scattered to the breeze, we've been forsaken. A lot of us think when we're not healthy, wealthy, and wise, we have been forsaken. That lie might yell at you from your TVs late at night, but it doesn't shout from Scripture. The Scripture says, Lo, I am with you always. The Scripture says the hand of the Lord was with them, was with them. God has promised his faithful presence, and God is faithfully present. There are many seasons where we don't have a cognizant, right in the front of our mind, awareness of that. There are many, many moments we don't feel that, but God is there. He is relentlessly present in our lives. There's not a place on this globe that is a God-forsaken place. God is with us. He has promised to be. And this promise of faithfulness, a promise that God keeps, this is the foundation of our call to faithfulness to him. So word came that there are all these Gentiles becoming followers of Jesus. Down in Jerusalem, the word came. And so they turned in some business meeting, and they said, hey, who we got? Who we got we can trust? We got Barnabas. We can trust Barnabas. Barnabas, go on down there and check this out. So Barnabas goes to Antioch, and he sees what's going on in Antioch. He pays attention. Uh, he, he's there. And as, and as he saw, he said he saw the grace of God. He rejoiced in the grace of God. He celebrated the fact that God was alive and on the loose in the world, and that the hand of God was present in the lives of the disciples of Jesus and in the lives of these people in Antioch from all over the place. He is celebrating the fact that the glories of God are being proclaimed in the tongues of the nations. He celebrates it. And then he gives them a little talk He begins to exhort them, to encourage them. Barnabas is a great encourager, and this is what he encourages them to do. He encourages them to cleave to God. He encourages them to live a life of faithfulness, a faithfulness that is kindled by the fires of committed devotion. He he encourages them in this moment because when beautiful things happen, we're tempted to do two things. One, we're tempted to take credit for it and celebrate it and begin to manage it. And when tough things happen, we tend to despair. And so Barnabas knew that the church was, was facing the opportunity to future exhaustion or future despair, and he wanted none of that. He wanted them to be bonded completely and totally to God. And so in this moment of great victory, as he celebrated the grace of God in their midst, he encouraged them to lash their lives to God's faithful presence in this world and to relate all of their experiences, all of their their moments to that. He said, be devoted and faithful to the one who is in your midst and who is gracious. 
Why did he do that? Why was this Barnabas' message? Well, for one, that's how he lived his life. That's who he was. He was described in Acts as a good man, a faithful man, a man of goodness, a man of faith, one that was flourishing, one, one for whom God was growing, uh, one, one that was, was celebrating his life in God. And then Luke said this too, and this is the key to understanding. He said this good and faithful man, he was full of the Holy Spirit. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. You see, his faithfulness was a faithfulness born of God's grace. His flourishing was a flourishing that came from inside out as God worked in his life. His was not some self-righteous, squirrel-went-berserk kind of thing. His was real and settled, and it came from a tender and a loving relationship with God. And there's a beautiful principle here for all of us, and this is the principle. When the Spirit of Jesus, when the Spirit of Christ fills the body of Christ, the church, resurrection follows. When the breath is in the body, transforming life is present in the world. And Barnabas was a man who was called by God, and he was a member of the body of Christ, and he was breathing in the life force that was grace, that was God. And he was used as a conduit, a tributary of transforming grace in the world, and he saw this in their life in this, in this very fresh new form, and he wanted to fan the flame of this, and he wanted them to live their life of faithfulness completely and totally devoted to God. And that's what God would have for all of us. To live a life lashed to him gladly. To live a life breathing life in and offering life out. Freely giving what we have freely received. When this happens, witness in the world occurs. And God is glorified. You say, Matt, that sounds great. I want to be committed to that. I want to be a faithful person. Uh, I've even read the Proverbs where it says a faithful person is a refreshing presence in the world, you know, like a snow-cooled drink on harvest day. Uh, I, I want to be refreshing in the world. I, I, I want to make a difference in the world. I, I, want to be, I want to be like that. I want to be like Barnabas, a, a good person, a faithful person. How do we go about doing it? I'm glad you asked. Because the next maybe five, ten minutes, we're going to give to some application points. It's hard to think about God because God's invisible. And God's ways are tricky sometimes. But God gives us these gifts. He gives us these things that we can place in our life that create space for us to experience his realized faithful presence among us. Whereby we become a faithful presence in this world. Today I offer you six words. Six words and a little explanation along the way. The first word is word. To grow in faithful presence and to live a life of total devotion to God, we need to be people that marinate in the Word of God, that marinate in the truths of God. Peter said it like this in, in 1 Peter, beginning chapter 1, verse 22. Now that you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, so that you have genuine mutual love, love one another deeply from the heart. You have been born anew, not of perishable, but of imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God. 
For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of, of grass. The grass wither and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. The word is the good news that was announced to you. Rid yourself, therefore, of all malice and all guile, insincerity, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Tender words from a grizzled, tough guy. Indeed, if you have tasted that God is good, if you've been born again, born anew, if you have received into your life this imperishable seed that brings life from within, then you flourish by being nourished. Oh, that rhyme, that was good. You flourish by being nourished by the Word of God. Begin to crave it like a little baby craves the milk of his mother. Uh, begin to crave it and long for that nourishment that comes into your life, knowing that through its entrance in, life grows and life comes out. We are called to a life of faithfulness. We won't get there by an act of our will alone. We won't live faithful lives to God or to one another simply because we want to. Now, that's a good and important starting place. But we won't finish it out like that. We're not strong enough. We're not. We need nourishment. And we need strength from outside. And one of the ways that we find that and tap that is to begin to be fed by the life-giving Word of God. I'm going to put the cookies on the lowest shelf possible right now. I don't want to insult any of your intelligence. But wake up early enough to begin your day with the Scriptures. It does not take much time to read through the Bible. It simply does not. Get a plan and set your clock and begin to bathe your mind with the words of God before you attack your day. As you begin to feed like that, your craving grows and your nourishment increases and you get stronger and life gets different. So the first word is word. The second word is prayer. It sounds mysterious and it's kind of weird because we're talking to someone that we claim we know and, yet, and we do know yet we cannot see. Prayer is what makes us weird. Just about everything we do as Christians, other cool and nice people can do. They can do kind things. They can do social justice. They can meet in groups. They can, they can kill it with casseroles. I've known plenty of secular people that just can kill it with casseroles. And fellowships and all that kind of stuff. But the thing that separates us, the thing that makes us really strange, is that we talk to God. And we believe God talks back. People say, you talk to God. That makes you a prayerful person. God talks to you. That makes you crazy. That's what Lily Tomlin said. No. We believe that we're in this conversational relationship with the living God as the, as the word nourishes our life as we speak to God. And what do we ask for God that makes us faithful? We ask for his presence and his help. I recently read a beautiful book by David Fitch titled Faithful Presence. Fitch is a professor at Northern Seminary from the Christian and Missionary Alliance background and Toward the end of the book, he's talking about prayer and, and how prayer is connected to uh, a faithful ministry of God's people 
in the world. And listen to what he says. He said, Revelation ends with this prayer of the church, Come, Lord Jesus. This prayer traditionally prays for Christ's future return and the culmination of all things. But is there more to this prayer than that? Is this prayer only waiting for the future, or is it also a prayer for his presence to come among us now? Like kingdom prayer, does come Lord Jesus open space for Christ's presence to be among us here today for the inbreaking of his kingdom, a foretaste of where the whole world is going? I contend yes. Oh, come Lord Jesus, he says. Let us pray this prayer, suffer and flourish in this prayer. Let's live all of life in this prayer as we learn to walk as a people called to be Christ's faithful presence in the world. This is the way God will change the world. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Bishop Mole used to have a little card on his desk, two words, ask him. It was his daily reminder to ask God for his presence to empower and to bless and strengthen him as he tried to live his day, bringing honor and glory to him and true blessing into the lives of others. The word and prayer And that prayer needs to be, come and help. Third word, song. We are a singing people. And we sing because in our song we find the strength of God's presence as God inhabits the praise of his people. We don't sing because we have it all together or we're walking in some vital victory every single moment of our life. We sing sometimes as an act of defiance against the forces of despair. We sing because God has given us a song to sing. My grandfather, he didn't like to sing, but he sang. He skipped every third verse. If that, if that music minister made him sing it, he would skip it uh, in defiance. He just would not sing it. But he learned to sing, and and even my old crusty grandfather who cut his fingers off with table saws and stuff like that, even my old grandfather learned that the song would nourish you in the night, in those words. Now my grandmother, uh, my maternal grandmother, not the one married to this old guy, she was more demonstrative in her song. When she was a little girl, she took piano lessons uh, from this, this old lady uh, that was Hartley Peavy's uh, aunt, Peavy Electronics, you know, the big speakers and all that. Well, when she was little, she used to babysit Hartley Peavy as she was waiting on her piano lessons. One of her claims to fame is that she has changed Hartley Peavy's diapers. Uh, and this old lady taught my grandmother how to play the piano, and she used that skill as she sat at the piano and sang songs to God. My grandmother was divorced young because my grandfather was violent. In her 30s, as she was raising kids with my great-grandparents, she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. She buried a son when he was in his 20s. The song we sang this morning, Oh, How He Loves You and Me, he requested that song because he was a high school teacher and he wanted all those kids to know that, uh, look, this is bad, but God is better than this. And he loves me, and I want you to understand that. He wasn't really demonstrative in his faith, but he was settled in it, and he wanted to sing that song because he wanted to sing the gospel into them. My grandmother learned to sing that one. She had strokes years later. She sang all the way through them. Took her out of work and and put her at home, and she became what we would call a shut-in. She refused to be a shut-in. She invited the church to give her one of these things that duplicated tapes because she wanted those tapes to go out to shut-ins because she sure wasn't one. She sang all the way through that. One of the things I'm grateful for is that she's lived long enough for my kids to know her. 
when we visit them back home, she lives with my mom and dad. You can hear her on the other end of the house. Mom and dad have a big house, and she's got her little spot in the back. And, and you can hear her in the back because when she gets cranked up, she gets cranked up by singing. I mean, she, she's on a walker, and she walks. She kind of starts off like a, a, a capital letter L, just over like this. And you hear on the back of the house, Onward, Christian soldiers! It's an odd-sounding song because she's kind of just kind of coming at it. And my kids are, what's, what's Grand doing? Why is she singing? She's getting started. She's living. It's in that song that she's found the faithful presence of God. And because she's discovered the faithful presence of God in this world, she can be faithfully present to all of us, mediating the grace of God. Maybe that's one of the ways we do it. The word, the prayer, the song. How about this, the table? Every single day you have to eat. I obviously eat too. And those meal times can be these hurried experiences of putting calories in our body, or they can be moments of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer thought they should be the latter. As he was leading a seminary on the run, not an underground seminary, but a seminary on the run. He admonished his students, those who were standing faithfully against the Nazi regime in Germany, to think about how they shared table with one another and how they ate their meals. He said it like this, God cannot endure that unfestive, mirthless attitude of ours in which we eat our bread in sorrow with pretentious busyness, haste, or even with shame. He said through our daily meals, he, capital H, is calling us to rejoice, to keep holiday in the midst of our working day. We should all repent of eating uh, cubicle salad luncheons by ourselves in hurried haste. We should find those moments day after day after day where we invite the presence of God to encourage us and nourish us, to thank God for the gift of friends and coworkers, to thank God for his daily bread and to know his grace. To know his grace. There's table. There's work. The things he's given our hands to do, this work of witness, this can be a place where we find the nourishment of the Spirit and taste God's faithful presence in the midst of this world and rest. Some of us are too important to die. You're going to die anyway. And each night, as an act of faith, as an act of humbling yourself before God, you can lay your head on a pillow and you can sleep. And God's grace, without you even trying, will meet you right where you lay. And you'll find again that his mercies come new every morning. When you wake up, the world's still going to be there. And you'll be able to enter it gratefully, humbly, alive. We can do this all day, but we won't because you've got lunch plans. And lunch is important. <laughs> Hallelujah. (laughs) 
God is faithfully present in this world. God has not left you. He's not. Where you go tomorrow, God will already be there. And our job is to be faithfully present and to attend to his presence and by his grace point others to his presence in the world. Celebrating his grace among us and feeling the strengthening power of his hand. Let's pray together. God, we fully repent of all those moments where we think too highly of ourselves and too lowly of you. Lord, give us grace to lose our life to find it. And give us courage, Lord, to confess our deep and abiding need for you. Our prayer as a church is come, Lord Jesus, in the presence of your spirit. Break into our our moments, these concrete nows. And Lord, help us to experience your grace. Lord, as we stand and sing here in this room, we pray that if there are those that have decisions to make publicly today to join this church, to confess you, or simply because they need prayer, that they would find the liberty and the courage to come. Lord, may all of us recommit ourselves to a life of faithful devotion to you who've showed us so much faithfulness. We love you. We thank you for loving us first. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, let's stand and let's sing together. David.